Well, hello there. Happy Friday to you. Jill Bennett is still on vacation. She will be back on Monday. I'm Jody Vance sitting in and there's a lot to get to today. Holy moly. Woke up this morning to a whole new landscape in the mayoral race in the city of Vancouver. Uh, my partner in crime on the Unspun podcast, we do a BC Poly podcast weekly called Unspun, George Affleck and I do. Uh, but today I'm not bringing him on as my co-host. I'm bringing him on as a political analyst and and former NPA city councillor to get perspective on the, the landslide news that John Cooper, the NPA candidate for mayor of Vancouver, has decided not to run. He's pulled out of the race. So we want to unpack this. Let's bring in George Affleck here. Uh, thanks for doing this, George. I know you're busy in your, in your regular day job. Uh, yeah. Hey, Jody. So how does this land with you? Well, shocker, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. Uh, as you said, uh, did not see this coming. Huge uh, hole, uh, not only in politics, you know, as a person, uh, you know, he and our good friends, uh, he, he did not give me any heads up on this. Uh, so I guess he's not that good of a friend. John! Um, John! <laughs> John! Um, <laughs> no, I mean, he would have been a really good mayor, and I'm really sad to see him leave. I think he had all the things that I think that the city needs right now. He's a good guy. He cares about getting the things that we need done in the city done. Uh, but clearly he felt that uh, this was not his time, I guess, and, and decided to, to, to bail. You know, I full disclosure, I also am friends with John Cooper. I, I became friends with him over uh, an issue I was having with trying to get a hot dog at a, a park in Vancouver. And I couldn't believe at Little League for my son that we couldn't get a hot dog from the concession stand because of permitting problems. And I tweeted about it and I didn't expect there to be any reaction whatsoever. But who, lo and behold, who showed up at the actual Little League game and then started the ball rolling to get some hot dogs for the little leaguers was John Cooper. I mean, he is a guy who, you know, politics aside, when you, whether you want to party politic brand this or not, because people say, Oh, you're such an NPA or which I'm not. Uh, but I am John Cooper's friend. And I did have an opportunity. I called him immediately when a little bird landed on my shoulder and said that this was happening. And mm-hmm. he picked up the phone and I asked him and I, and I have permission to say this because he's not talking today or as of right now, he says he's not talking today. If you change your mind, John, feel free to give me a call. Um, mm-hmm. But he basically, I said, are you okay? Because he is so dedicated to making mm-hmm. this city the best it can be that my concern was there was another reason, a health reason, an issue, something mm-hmm. had happened. It, yeah. it seemed so out of the blue, right? And he goes, no, 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 I'm fine. I just I just feel like the path forward uh, it isn't clear. And as you and I talk about on our podcast, we just had a, an episode of Unspun Podcast drop at, at yesterday. We, we recorded it and there was kind of a moment in there where we're talking about what needs to happen in this race specifically and how mm-hmm. this is playing out with regard to the candidates. So with the NPA candidate now gone, the NPA saying that they are going to announce somebody that will run. Uh, but mm-hmm. we talked yesterday on our podcast, George, about how how busy this and noisy this field is, how the votes are mm-hmm. being split so many ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure all the other right of centre candidates are doing happy dances while also being nice on Twitter uh, and saying, thanks, John. Uh, this is good news for them, for sure. Uh, the polling that came out this week, you know, a bit, you know, skeptical on the data on that one. Uh, I think there was a path forward for John to win the, the election. NPA, no matter what people say, is still a strong brand in the city. You have a dedicated voter base. It's really hard to build. You know, I'm in marketing and branding, and building a brand is really, really hard and very, very expensive. Uh, and uh, Twitter is not the whole world, uh, and people don't pay that much attention. So, 
you know, we have two months to the election. That's a lifetime in politics. Um, and I think there was a path forward for John. So I'm hoping, he, you know, he might have been dismayed from the data that came out this week. Maybe they have some internal polling that uh, that's not looking good. I don't know. But it's so early to me that uh, that there's still an opportunity for the NPA brand, I think, to, to uh, if they had the right candidate in place, to, to win the election. That said, uh, you know, because it does open it up to them if they don't run the candidate. Um, then that is a great opportunity for the other parties. I still don't think that, uh, based on the data that we're seeing today, that uh, and and, the, and even without the NPA, the split on the right is so uh, you know there's just so many people still running um, that you'll still you'll still you'll still see likely Kennedy Stewart win the win the election. Right. So it's going to take fewer on the right in order to to have change in City mm-hmm. Hall. We talk about that all the time, but when it comes to um, how this moves forward, as you said, you work in communications, Curve Communications, uh, you're a co-owner, a principal of. So you mm-hmm. you can look at this and look at the MPA and say, OK, um, they have a strong brand. And, and most people, you and I are nerds. A lot of people who are listening right <laughs> now who are very engaged in municipal politics are also nerds. But the mm-hmm. mass majority of people I had Kirk LaPointe on earlier this week talking about how 40% of the, the electorate in Vancouver, in the city of Vancouver, are undecided. Yeah, and then that's a huge, that latest poll showed that. And I think that shows you that this campaign so far is not inspiring anybody for any of the candidates, uh, which is an opportunity if uh, MPA were to get somebody that's inspiring. And I think they could slide up and take the campaign for sure. Uh, I just don't think people are very interested in any of the candidates that are currently out there. It's just not a very exciting campaign and not really providing us uh, with anything uh, new. And uh, it's early days again. We haven't seen the full campaign promises, but uh, it's just the candidates aren't, aren't, aren't exciting anybody. And I think that's clear in the polls. Um, so, you know, but then again, you throw in, nobody votes anyways. You get 38% in the last election, uh, showed up. So that poll is also kind of, you know, what is the real number? And, you know, young people may say they vote for this person, but they don't show up. <laughs> they, right. they may answer a poll, but they don't show up to vote. 30, 38% of people vote and a hundred percent of people complain, which is out of balance <laughs> and out of whack. <laughs> One of the things that you hit on really on unspun podcast, which by the way, if you want to listen to George's sort of take on, on all of this, which was kind of witchy because it happened, we were really unpacking what's needed for a candidate to make some noise right now. And, and we talked about the specific candidates here, but you laid down some hard and fast truths yesterday that led me to ask, please, would you consider running? <laughs> but but on, on the podcast, you're talking about what needs to happen in the city, regardless of who takes over in the mayor's office. What are mm-hmm. the first steps that should be taken? Well, I think uh, the one thing that is clear by most Vancouverites is that the spending is out of control in, in the city and the things getting done are not getting done. So there needs to be an analysis of, uh, of where the money is being spent and then the prioritizing the things that we know should be prioritized, uh, practical uh, things that uh, should be done by any city at any time. And then if there's money left over to spend on extravagances or important issues that the city wants to represent or fight for or change, uh, then absolutely they, that money can go towards that. But I think first, let's make sure we're doing as a city. I think they have to be, do, do, do your job properly. <laughs> like start there. You and right. Park Ward. T- yeah, right. Tearing a page out of the POCO planning committee, uh, being able to prioritize is yeah. and, and looking at the budget, as you said, with this last administration um, who just didn't take a moment, take a breath to look at where money was being spent. It felt like we just went headlong into pet projects and, and yeah. motions and, and yeah. things that 
that don't address some of the basic needs of the city. Like the city is dirty and the garbage and waste and recycle and green is not being picked up regularly. We have mm-hmm. infrastructure problems. We have graffiti problems. We have crime problems on top of the homelessness and the issues with affordability. And some of the things are provincial and some of the things are federal, but a lot starts at the municipal level, does it not? What's the budget in Vancouver? Yeah, it's $1.3 billion and it's going to be $1.5. I mean, there's the operating and capital budget. So you're you're looking at billions of dollars being spent in the city. Uh, and, you know, we don't know where it's all going. Uh, I think that uh, when you talk about housing, which is obviously a priority, and the mayor currently often writes strongly worded letters, other levels of government, sends out press releases saying it's the federal government, the provincial government's problem. Why are they not helping us? That's true, but I think also as a region, I think the mayors need to get together and come up with a plan uh, of how to increase housing, not just in Vancouver, but in every single market. Why are they all not talking together and saying, where is the available land? How can we open that up to build? Let's get this done as a region. Uh, we can't wait for the federal and provincial governments to step up uh, to the level that we need, but we don't know what we need. But Vancouver can't handle this on alone. Uh, and any candidate that promises to solve homelessness or solve the housing problem is is, is deceiving uh, the electorate. It's really got to be a regional, national, provincial issue that's taken care of. But uh, at the start, let's just look at the budgets and overall. They have until April next year to approve a budget. There's no reason to approve a budget out of the gate when this new council gets elected. You can wait. Take your time. Do it, do it properly. Start from zero. Work your way up from there. Due diligence, adult in the room, common sense. What a concept. Follow him on social media, George. Underscore. <laughs> Affleck, it's kind of a thing we do. Unspunpodcast.com is where you can hear me pleading with George to do something in City Hall. Um, uh, thank you for your time, my friend. I appreciate okay. it. Keep us posted on all things. Okay. Cheers. Bye. He is a former city councillor, of course, for the MPA. He's a political analyst. He is a fill-in host here on CKNW, and he is my friend and co-host on unspunpodcast.com. He is George Affleck. So uh, honestly, follow him on Twitter, George underscore Affleck. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. And for the next couple minutes, we're going to have a conversation about the Rockin' River Music Festival in Merritt. And while I would like this to be a happy tale of a return to gathering and music and community and fun, unfortunately for one concert goer, one regular festival goer, it was a bit of a nightmare to say the least. I want to bring in Mitchell Garrett. Mitchell posted on social media about his experience at the Rockin' River Music Festival, and it was toe curling to say the least. Mitchell happens to be a wheelchair user who has attended tons of music festivals in the past, including Coachella in 2018. I mean, you live in the dream, Mitchell, here, but there was a pretty significant uh, failure that happened at the Rock, Rock and River Music Festival. First of all, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jody. So lay this out. Tell us what happened. So yeah, we, uh, my girlfriend and I, we went up to Rock and River this past weekend, and uh, we, we, we showed up Thursday, right, to have a good time. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> when we entered the festival, uh, we, we were having a hard time finding the accessibility stage. And it got into like a little bit messy with some security guards. Um, Thursday night, what what really kind of took off, uh, as I'm chilling, hanging out with my friends, I went to the washroom area and there was not an accessible washroom. So me using a wheelchair, uh, that just means that I would have to go in the open in front of everybody. 
uh, not not too ideal, especially since it takes me like a couple minutes with with my junk out, right? So yeah. I go up to a security guard and I ask him if I can go behind a gate to to be in private, and he pretty much told me like, no, I either have to do it in in the open or I'm or I have to leave the festival. And it got to the point that I just had to like go try and make it as private as possible and continue on with my night. Um, and then as the weekend continued through Friday and Saturday, we were trying to find the accessibility stage and none of the security guards were actually um, informed where it was. And it was uh, really unfortunate. It was a wild goose hunt for a little bit. We actually ended up missing most of Kip Moore because we were trying to ask security guards where the accessibility stage was. It, it got so bad that my girlfriend started crying and one of the, and, and another security guard uh, who was more competent, I should say, he ended up coming up to us and he was like, why are you crying? Like, you know, like this is not good. Um, and she ended up explaining to him that we have been on a wild goose hunt trying to find the accessibility stage. And that's when the security guard uh, kind of took us into his own hands and he escorted us straight there and, uh, and gave us, show, showed us the rest of the night uh, or, or, or allowed us to have a good rest of the night. Uh, well, the thank goodness night, for that. Hold on, hold on. I just want to pause yeah, there yeah. for one second. So, so that's good news. I still can't believe the conversation that you had with a security guard about wanting some privacy to, to use facilities that weren't even provided there. And, and it said on the flyer, obviously you bought an accessible ticket. I did say that the festival was uh, accessible and they did have accessibility needs in certain areas. Um, it just was unfortunate that it wasn't in all areas. Yeah, no kidding. What, how yeah. frustrating is it to be told an event is accessible and then to encounter staff that aren't able to assist like that? It's very frustrating. I mean, to be honest, being a festival goer, we, we make most of our contact through the security guards and these are the people who me personally, I believe should have a, should, should kind of know the, the, the grounds, like the back of their hands. So yeah. for me to like go up to, you know, pretty much a handful of security guards and them not, and not one knowing it was, it was really unfortunate. It, it, it's never happened at any other concert or festival that I have attended to in the past. Um, so yeah, it was just, it, it, it was really alarming to be honest. So when it, when it comes to that issue, like I read your Facebook post and one of the pieces that really jumped out at me was about how you had a flyer in your hand pointing to where it says there is accessibility here. And the, and the security guard was like shrugging. Sorry, man. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was my girlfriend that was holding that. And, and, and it, the worst part about it was that they were that they had the accessibility stage labeled differently than where it was. We were told that it was on the right side. Um, I read that it was on the east side of the, um, uh, on, the stage. On the east side of the stage. Uh, so when, was actually, I was going up and speaking with the security guard again. Mitchell was going pee. He like tucked himself behind somewhere. The security, all he was focused on was that was not a place for him to be. He should not be there. I was trying to explain to him. I'm sorry. We're trying to find the accessible stage. Still, we know there's a washroom there. We literally cannot find it. This right. guy did not speak a lot of English, which is, I'm not trying to bash him for that, but it was like, I guess, a lack of communication, but he also did not 
know where it was. Maybe it was just a lack of communication. Anyways, then I kept asking him to like radio and ask somebody and he just kept saying, no, I can't. No, I can't. Eventually he told me it was upstairs. We went back and forth for a good 10 minutes. It was a wild goose hunt to be completely honest. Upstairs? Like, yes, he eventually, so he told me that he didn't know. Unfortunately, everyone's too busy. He can't ask. I was showing him. He wouldn't even look at my phone that had that it where it said accessible stage to the east. Um, and yeah, then eventually he ended up saying, it's up those stairs. It's up those stairs. And I was like, no, you're not understanding what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for the, it was like a, I don't know, a, a, like a better place to be. You had to have it was, it was the VIP area at the very top. Like you kind of had to go up two flights of stairs, which alarmed me when they first told me that it was on that side because I wasn't able to see a ramp. So I was just assuming that when I went to the backside that there was going to be a ramp and that the guy would like kind of understand. And yeah, it just, it just became, became very messy. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Thanks for sticking around Haley and Mitchell. We're talking to this couple who went to the rock and river music festival this past weekend and Mitchell Garrett, who happens to be a wheelchair user found it, uh, difficult to say the least to navigate uh this event and didn't get a lot of help when looking for a restroom that was accessible then looking for the accessibility area to watch the actual festival and then uh you know the drama that ensues here luckily there was one person who stepped up and was able to ultimately help you here uh, you posted about it on social media i think haley you posted about it on social media can you guys tell me what reaction if any you've received from the festival uh, organizers so we've been uh, like a couple people that were working the festival have reached out to me and like kind of expressed their experience with the same. Um, and as of right now, uh, at the end of the festival, one of the managers came up to us and gave us shirts and wanted to make sure that everything is okay. Um, as well, like the guard tech uh, manager of him, I guess, like the higher this his supervisor came yeah. over and spoke to us and was telling us that it, it, it it's not okay. Um, from what I know, I believe they want to get in contact with us um, after the festival. Uh, we, we do know that they have uh, seen the video and the post. Um, so I think, uh, I think some more things uh, behind the scenes of them reaching out or stuff like that may happen. Okay, good. Well, we reached out. We reached out to them and we have not received any response. Just so you know, go ahead, Haley. Sorry, I would just like to hop in here really quick and say um, that during all of this chaos, we did talk to a few of the other guard tech securities. They were very kind. They reassured okay. us, please have a good time. We'll pass this information on. As well as I spoke with Chris. I'm not really sure his role, um, but somewhere in the Rock and River staff, he took our concerns and he promised to get back to me after um, he was able to address it with his colleagues. Um okay. And yeah, and also we just wanted to give a quick shout out to um, the other festival goers and the shuttle bus operators and other Rocking River staff who really were amazing, really went out of their way to help us any way that they could. Um, I just wanted to make that clear because I think there was some blurring along the lines from my post that some people thought that maybe it was other people that were treating us poorly. No, it was just a big portion of the security guards from GuardTech and quite a few people actually also expressed their concerns. I would say almost like everyone that I spoke to at Accessible Stage that they said that they had issues as well. Right. Um, so there's a lesson here. There's a good lesson here. And it could make the Rock and River Festival exponentially better for yeah. everyone, right? Moving forward, you guys are actually 
shining light where it needs to be. And, and Haley, I really appreciate you taking the sort of let's yell into the void here away and say, you know what, there are really good people that were trying really hard to do all of the right things, but it just wasn't organized the way it could have been and maybe will be in 2023. Yeah. And as well, oh, sorry, we also just want to recognize that um, with talking to some of the staff, they did explain that due to the floods, it was like quite chaotic. And the first time um, since um, COVID that they put it on, a few people did tell us that were there the year before COVID so that there were accessible washrooms in a better position. And for right. some reason this year, the, the ball just got dropped. So ultimately, that is our goal is that next year we can go. We don't have to worry about people making hateful comments towards us or yeah. or. Yeah, having to struggle to find accessibility. Right. The struggle should not be present at all, frankly. It's a struggle enough. As I said to Ben Dooley, our producer Ben Dooley also happens to use a wheelchair. And Ben Mm -hmm. and I have talked at length uh, on the subject matter. I have very little experience with being a disabled, but I did have to navigate with my dad as his essential caregiver, a wheelchair for him. And I, it was astounding to me how many barriers are suddenly before you when you, and cause you just want to have a good time, Mitch. Like you want to, you're just a guy wanting to go to a festival, have a good time. You just happen to be in a wheelchair There's, And it could be so easy with a little forethought for by yeah, the organizers, right? when when yeah. when i actually like break down like what kind of went on it's it's kind of comes down to just like porta potty placement and and yeah. it seems and it and it and and poor communication right and right. like these are things that definitely can be can be worked on and can be fixed so there's that benefit of it and uh yeah i think i think we can definitely see some some positive improvements coming Good. coming forward Good. Well, party on, Mitchell. Party on, Haley. Thank you very much for taking some time to tell your story. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Party on. Party on. Thank you very much, Jody. Let's talk about the Abbotsford Air Show. It takes to the skies starting today. Gates open at three. It runs through Sunday. It's sort of a pilgrimage for many of us. I remember how we would count down to this weekend as kids and we would, knowing that we would sit in traffic trying to get to the field and then we'd mark out our territory and we'd sit there and we'd wait and in the early days I remember my brother Greg and I we would we'd sit there and we'd talk about the blue angels blue angels were going to come and then the snowbirds and it was oh the snowbirds and then the flybys would happen and bang oh it would just it still gives me goosebumps I just and I'm the world's worst flyer I'm a terrified flyer but I'm excited by the Abbotsford Air Show it is really something to behold and I always think about those pilots and think how are they so gutsy and you know danger zone is probably our next guest theme song or is it so cliche andrew that everywhere you go and every time you're interviewed somebody is playing danger zone as we bring in andrew soundy a lockheed martin f-35 chief test pilot thank you for being with us it's my pleasure what is it like for you to see the kids like those that I just described to you, my brother and I sitting there wide-eyed looking at what you do? It must be really something uh, to see the faces of, of those of us in awe by what you do each day. So it certainly is, you know, and I think the interesting thing about that, right, when I was young, that was me. So that's what I wanted to do my whole life. So it's really awesome now, especially flying the F-35 to be able to talk to kids now about, you know, my story and how I got to where I am now and how cool it is to do what I get to do and, and hopefully inspire some of those aspiring uh, young pilots to, to follow in footsteps, right? So, yeah, it's really cool. 
All right. Give us a taste of that story, if you don't mind. So, um, you know, uh, I was born in the in the UK, but uh, my mom's side of the family um, after World War II, they all came out to uh, to Canada. Uh, they settled in the in the Toronto area, but um, you know, we followed uh, um, a few years later, and um, uh, mom and dad came for a vacation and fell in love with Canada, and and over we came, you know. And um, like I said, my uh, aspirations was was always to be a fighter pilot, right? So that's what I put my mind to, and um, in. 82, when we arrived in Canada, the Hornet, the CF-18, had, had just come online with the uh, the Canadian forces, you know. So that was my, my dream, and, and I followed it and uh, and worked hard and was accepted into the, the Canadian forces. And um, that's where my connection to the local area here started. Uh, so I went to uh, Royal Roads Military College uh, back uh, when it was still a mil- uh, military college, near Victoria, spent my first two years there working on an engineering degree. And then um, Royal Roads didn't grant uh, engineering degrees at that time. So I finished out my final two years at RMC in uh, in Kingston and then off the pilot training from there and was uh, lucky enough to get selected to, to fly the Hornet. And, and that's what I did. So that's my connection to the local area here. And it's great to be back. It gives me goosebumps to hear your story. I grew up across the street from a, I'll call you a Top Gun pilot uh, with the Royal Canadian Air Force in, in Brigadier General Alex Day. He literally is the boy next door for me growing up. So this is a real story of how kids can be inspired to become an Andrew Soundy, uh, an Alex Day one day. This is not just a Hollywood movie. So what are the tools that we need to tell young people they need to acquire in order to follow in your footsteps circa 2022? Yeah, so, um, you know, the way I always approach that question is, first and foremost, you have to be passionate about what you do, right? So if the passion isn't there, then it, then it's difficult to, to keep up the work. So, you know, certainly for me, that was the passion. And so what I encourage everybody to do is follow your heart, right? Like wherever that's going to take you. And if, if this is where your passion is, then that's what's going to help drive you. Of course, you've got to stay out of trouble, right? That that right. goes without saying. And then just keep working hard. And, uh, you know, I think when I was younger, I always felt that, that I could um, – control um where my life was going but i think i've learned over the years that you can't always do that but what you can do is equip yourself with the the knowledge and the education and and the hard work to make sure that when those opportunities do present themselves you have what you need to take advantage of them right and so that's what what i really encourage people to do is follow your passion stay out of trouble and work hard and make sure you're ready to go when the opportunity's there we're with F-35 Chief Test Pilot Andrew Soundy. Can I ask you this question about when you mention education, somebody might think, you know what, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know if I'm book smart enough. Would you consider yourself uh, a technical mind, you know, that that understood the math, the dynamics, the engineering and, and that piece? Or were you a, a, a practical learner that was able to soak it up and then work really diligently on those details? Or is it a combination of both? So when it comes to flying, um, there's there's opportunities in any direction, right? So that sort of street smart that you're referring to, 
that's definitely um, a requirement, right? It, it's good yeah. to have that. My passion um, lied academically as well, and that's kind of what pushed me more towards the test flying side of things. Mm-hmm. So what I do for a living now, right, I test the F-35 and its development at uh, Edwards Air Force Base. The education that I got on the technical side of things helps me bring that to bear on developing the F-35, right? So yeah. from the handling quality side of it, and that's where kind of like the, the street smart piece comes into it as well. So just being able to feel an airplane and understand it, but having done the technical work behind it as well to be able to understand that what I'm sensing from the airplane, I can apply uh, technical know-how to it as well to make the airplane the best it can be. And that's what we do every day out at Edwards Air Force Base, right? We pour our heart and souls into this airplane to develop it into the fine machine that it is now, right? And um, I'm surrounded by the the other great pieces. I'm surrounded by a massive team of professionals that are just as passionate and feel the same way. And, And like I said, every day, we pour our heart and soul into this airplane to work on it. When we see a presentation like we'd see at the Abbotsford Air Show with the acrobatics piece or, or the military planes that, that do a flyby or if we're down at the celebration of light and, and, you know, the snowbirds fly over, how many hours and hours of training might go into becoming a pilot of that ilk? It's, it's hard to say. So I, I know like some of these guys flying these airplanes, they've, they've done it for years, you know. I know my training in the Canadian military was um, – you know, four years at uh, university, and that's the part that helped me become a test pilot. There was a year flying at Moose Jaw, so that was about 200 hours in the Tudor jet. Then it was another two years for me before I became a fully qualified CF-18 pilot, right? So yeah. it was a year flying the CF-5, getting those basic fighter pilot skills, and then another year flying the Hornet and learning that machine. Then I go to my first operational squadron, and I'm still not ready. I'm still not considered combat ready, right? So it's another six wow. months of getting that. That yeah. So, but again, if you love what you do, that that time flies. Like I still can't believe looking back on it now, what I've done, where I've been, and how I've gotten to where I am now. So there's a lot goes into it. But these guys, like everyone I found in the aviation community, they're passionate about what they do, and like I said, that's what I love about where I'm at right now. Well, you're just taking us on a beautiful journey, Andrew. Thank you so much for allowing me to navigate and fly my way around your mind on this. I feel like I've been taken on a journey of of what goes into becoming an F-35 test pilot as you are. Uh, thanks for giving us some of your time today. It's my absolute pleasure, and it was uh, great chatting with you. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. She'll be back on Monday. Going to talk about powerhouse women because my next guest is certainly a powerhouse. She is a, uh, a leadership coach. She is a mom. She is uh, an accessible, smart, funny, talented. Yes, all of these things. She's my friend. But she is also a co-founder of something really special. It's called Matern. Matern.com. This is a resource for navigating the impacts of pregnancy on one's life and how maternity leave is no vacation. Oftentimes, when the stick turns blue, there's excitement. Then the baby bump, and it's fun, and it's great. And then there's so much to becoming a parent, becoming a mother, whether you're birthing a child or a non-birthing mother. There's a lot to unpack when it comes to the transition to motherhood that is often lost in the rainbows and unicorns of that stick 
turning blue. One other thing I love about Jen Murtog, the co-founder of Matern, is how much of a fierce advocate she is for gender equality. And we want to talk about getting back to work when you find yourself in that new next phase of your life. So I want to welcome my friend Jen to the show. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me on. It's an important conversation to have and one that often goes overlooked both by individuals returning back to work and organizations and how they can support women back to work. And funny, total random fact, I met you when you were pregnant with your first child because my the father of my only child was taking over your maternity leave job. And that's one of the things that sort of peaked with me, um, you know, we're all these years later. Um, and how much we've both learned in our in our evolution into being both a mother and mm-hmm. a really busy career woman. The balance is is something that oftentimes comes as a huge surprise to those who navigate their way through. So give us some lessons from Matern. Yeah, well, Matern was really uh, set up to support women through the many transitions of maternity leave. So in the lead up to the pause of leave, and women are taking up to 18 months now, and and that can play um, that can have a significant impact uh, on their career trajectory. There's something called the motherhood penalty, which is very pervasive in organizations. So, um, you know, mothers. Uh, versus non-mothers receive, uh, you know, are 8.2 times less likely to receive a promotion versus their childless counterparts. Um, And, you know, I could do a whole show on the motherhood penalty. But I think uh, what happens is we often think women will take this, you know, entry into motherhood and they change, you know, we change and, and they're sort of expected to just pick back up where they left um, on that pause. And that's really damaging. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's really hard to do because you go through a huge identity shift, especially if you're a career-minded woman who is going on leave. And a lot of your achievement, a lot of your worth, a lot of your value has been attributed to your career. Uh, becoming a mother in that shift, uh, the shift through into matrescence can be, uh, yeah, really hard to reconcile. And I know for me, you know, when I first met you on my leave, you know, I came back to work and my confidence was really shattered. Uh, you know, I forgot who I was and what I was good at. And I would have, I would have really would have benefited for a program like Matern. So it really mm-hmm. supports women as they go on leave, on leave and in the return to work. So it features weekly group coaching calls, online modules, and really this incredible private community from women across Canada who are also uh, taking a pause from their careers and are on leave. Matern.com, if you're listening right now and you're thinking, I know I need this or I know someone who could benefit from this, Matern.com. And I'm with co-founder of Matern, Jen Murtog. And Jen, when it comes to the the mother, the new mother who is who's finding their way back into the workforce, returning to their job and their career and really feeling the struggle. I got a, I got a um, DM on my, on my Twitter. I got to say I, my DMs are always open and randomly got a, a, a note from a follower, Rosalia. I hope you don't mind if I mention this Rosalia. She says amazing show today. I just can't wait to hear about the maternity leave stuff. I just went back to work and man, it was tough and is tough to navigate it all. Women also oftentimes feel like I'm failing because mm-hmm. I'm finding this difficult. And Matern mm-hmm. offers a, a resource for people to know that you're not alone. It's hard. 
Yeah, we want to normalize those experiences because I think what happens is when we feel things in isolation, we make meaning of them. What does this mean? Does this mean I shouldn't be going back to work? Does this mean that I should have gone back to work sooner? Does this mean like we try to make meaning? Maybe I'm not cut out for this anymore. Maybe I can't do the 40, 50 hours a week anymore. Or we start making meaning rather than um, working in community and recognizing, gosh, a lot of these challenges are faced by other women. And so how do we support ourselves through those? And how can we proactively work with our organization, our people leaders to, you know, express if it's if it feels safe about what the challenge is like and what your needs are, especially in the first month back to work. I mean, we've heard stories from so many women like they sent me to Japan on my first week back to work or, you know, there was just a real lack of understanding and support. And that really impacts how women feel about their career. And how they feel about being relevant in the workplace. If you can't be, you know, there, there is that side eye you get, even though it's completely inappropriate in the corporate world to technically do this from an HR perspective, it happens when, when the, when the boss, the hypothetical boss leans in and says, you're done having kids, right? (laughs) Yeah. Or like, Oh, you know what? We just didn't give you that because we know you're a mother now and we know your priorities have shifted. And, you know, sometimes with good intention, but I think, you know, maternal bias is the most pervasive form of gender bias and it really goes unaddressed in the workplace. And so we all are also working with organizations to address that, to better equip their people leaders about how to help support women through these transitions. And when they come back, how do we ensure that maternal bias isn't pervasive? Because if we want to attract, retain, and develop female talent, it's something that we really need to address. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're talking about Matern.com. This is Canada's first program and community providing comprehensive support to birthing and non-birthing mothers through their transition into motherhood and back to work. With us is fierce advocate for gender equality, Jen Murtaugh, is the co-founder of Matern. Thank you again for spending some time with us, Jen. We've opened up the phone lines for those who might want to chime in on this subject with whether or not you struggled with maternity leave or return to work, or if you have tips for those who are facing this new chapter, uh, opening up this conversation, oftentimes things we want to do on radio is to just spark the conversation that maybe you'll have around your kitchen table. If you want to get in on this table, 604-280-9898 is the number, or star 9898 is a free call. Jen, you ready to go to the phones? Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Linda and Ladner, you're up first. Welcome, Linda. Oh, hi, Jody. Yeah, I just hi. wanted to share, I wanted to share my story from 1998. Please. It was only it was six months maternity leave, and I had to leave at uh, two months before, so I had to take my maternity leave at, in June. My baby was born in September, and she sadly was sick for a month in the NIC ward. Mm. So my boss my boss called me in January when my time was up, and he said, "So time's up. Are you going to have another one? Or are you going to come back?" And I said, well, I said, well, I can't come back, but I would like to come maybe part-time. And he said, well, we already have Ash here. And I said, well, I hired Ash to, to, to hold my fort down. And so I had to decide, and I had to quit my job. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow. I said, but, you know, now 24 years later, sure, my life has, uh, you know, it's, it's changed for the better. But at the same time, I had to give up my income because that wasn't very nice, right? But right. I, thank, I thank God that there's that support now because we never had that. 
And then the next year, it went to a year. And now I know, like, nurses and union jobs, they get 18 months maternity leave. Yeah, well, it's federally mandated now that you can take up to 18 months and they have to hold your job for you. But you do stretch your maternity leave benefits out to 18 months. So it ends up being a little bit less each month than if you took the 12 months. However, I think what you you know, what you bring up here is an important point, I think, regardless I mean, first of all, making the assumption that you're going to have another one is, you know, maternal bias. And and even asking that question as a people leader, it's just not the right question to ask. The right question is to ask is, what do you need? How can we support you best? And with with our, you know, priorities as an organization, yeah, not every organization can accommodate either gradual reentry or part-time, but really having an open conversation about what are the supports that need to be in place in order for you to feel good about returning to work, no matter what that looks like. And a lot of organizations have moved to job sharing, um, to redefining what work looks like. And, and I think that's been one benefit of the pandemic is that it's offered a new perspective on how work can be accomplished, that we can, you know, we can work from home and be equally as effective, if not more as well, and have a little bit more flexibility. Thank you for sharing your story. Linda, thank you so much for that. Uh, Chiming in, you've helped somebody just by sharing just what you went through there and how far we've come and how far we still need to go. Let's go to Liesl in Vancouver. Welcome, Liesl. Hi, Jody. Hi. Yeah, I am a mother of three and uh, worked at a very cool tech startup out in New Brunswick that was acquired by Salesforce, a very large CRM company down in San Francisco. And, you know, when I had my second baby, I had postpartum depression, oh. and I so appreciated the 12-month maternity leave. But when I en- re-entered the workforce, I just realized I cannot swing um, the previous schedule that I had. Mm-hmm. And I think organizations that are huge, like Salesforce, talk a lot about supporting women and wanting to empower women, but they don't really make part-time work feasible or possible. They just, when the rubber hits the road, they don't. And especially living in Vancouver, the cost of childcare is prohibitive if you earn under a certain amount of money. You know, so I would say, I would love to see corporate Canada be a lot more intentional with their women in terms of putting real investment in childcare at work, making that a part of their facilities plan in their in their planning, um, allowing part-time work and not there, there being no shame in doing part-time work. Instead, what I've opted is I now work for a charity where it's a crisis pregnancy center that are run by women and it's for women and it's wonderful and it's part-time. So I have flex built into my schedule, but I know that I've had to make a decision to take a step down because there is no space for, a for a mom who's not willing to pay top dollar for childcare or who actually wants to be around for her kids and work. That's all mm-hmm. I would say. Thank you yeah. for your call, Liesl. Liesl, so much to unpack there. You're so right on, on so many levels, Jen. Yeah, well, two big things there. One, affordable childcare. I mean, it's why the federal government is investing millions of dollars of the, um, in the 10-a-day childcare 
Um, and, you know, would highly encourage people to have a look at that because it's an economic imperative. Um, it is preventing women from fully participating in the workforce with, uh, you know, like, first of all, trying to find childcare, And then when you find it, it can be exorbitantly expensive that it basically washes out what you're taking in from an income perspective. But second yeah. of all, I think what she brought up is that, yeah, companies are going to have to look at this in a, from a more innovative and creative perspective as to, you know, what are some different flexible um, types of job scenarios where we can attract, retain, and continue to develop female talent because we can't have women exiting the workforce, especially with over a million empty jobs in Canada and women making up, you know, more than 50% of the population. We need that talent, you know. Yeah. And so organizations are going to have to continue to be looking at innovative and creative ways about how to keep women. And a lot of this is what she talked about, the, just the last two callers, like yeah. job sharing, um, you know, creative solutions on you know, working 20 to 30 hours a week instead of most women, you know, often working 50 to 60 and then layering on unpaid labor and visible labor on top of that, you know, it can lead to a lot of overwhelm and burnout for women as well. I just think that in building all, when we talk about workspaces and corporate setups, why there aren't more uh, daycare spaces, childcare spaces, built for the employees. And that is a part that seems like a no brainer. I mean, the productivity piece would go through the roof, not to mention being able to attract great talent because I mean, it, it shouldn't be a deal breaker. And as if of all the things we've learned through this pandemic is how so much of this lands on women, right? That's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation. And Jen, we could go on for hours here, as you said. I'm so <laughs> glad we've just we've hit just the tip of the iceberg here. But Jen Murtog is on social media on Twitter. You can find her on LinkedIn. Matern.com, M-A-T-U-R-N.com is the resource. Thank you for giving us some time today. Thank you, Jody.